afternoon, everybody, and welcome to another podcast of the ESA ECM. Uh, my name is Denise Battaglini. I'm consultant in intensive care and PhD researcher at the San Martino Polyclinic Hospital in Genoa, and the next elect uh, committee member in ESA ECM. Today, will we discuss uh, practicalities of neuromonitoring with an expert in the field of neurocritical care. So it's a pleasure and an honor to have uh, our guest, uh, who is uh, Chiara Robba. Hi, Chiara. Hi, Denise. Hi. Thank you for the invitation. And uh, Chiara Robba is a consultant in neuro and general uh, intensive care at uh, Policlinico Salmantino Hospital in Italy, in Genoa. And she worked for many years at the Edinburgh Hospital in Cambridge, and she got a PhD in neuroscience under the supervision of uh, Prof. Marek Chosnika. Uh, she's uh, currently chair elect of the neurointensive care section of ESICM, uh, and her uh, research interests are mainly on uh, neuromonitoring, uh, autoregulation, neurointensive care, and mechanical ventilation. So, welcome, Chiara. Thank you, Denise, and uh, good afternoon to everybody. I'm looking forward to responding to your questions. Yeah. So today uh, we are going to discuss uh, some topics uh, that cover the basic uh, of uh, neuromonitoring research, uh, especially in patients who have not a direct brain injury, but also in uh, brain injured patients. So Chiara, the first question is, uh, what is the rationale to use the neuromonitoring in patients with the sepsis, COVID and the liver failure? So Thank you very much for this uh, question, which I think uh, is of extreme importance and uh, it's uh, uh, a major uh, field of my current research. It's something on which I really care. Uh, the reason is that uh, if I have to tell you uh, um, if there is a scientific rationale, I would say that uh, uh, there is very, very, very few evidence regarding the fact that uh, uh, neuromonitoring can improve outcomes in uh, um, non-brain injured patients and that uh, it should be a standard of care, etc. Uh, but what uh, guides my rationale, to answer your question, is uh, clinical practice and pragmatism and uh, some evidence which anyway are growing in the last uh, years. If you just think about uh, some clinical situations, for example, liver failure or cardiac arrest or sepsis, these are not the patients with a primarily brain injured patients. They are not TBI, they are not subarachnoidal hemorrhage, they don't have intracranial hemorrhages, etc. But still they are patients who have a high risk of developing neurological complications. And at the same time, they also develop, and we can see it from the literature, an important number of neurological complications. So basically, uh, you asked me a question, but I, I answer with another question, why shouldn't we monitor the brain in patients who are at high risk of neurological complications? We monitor the patients from the neck to the toes, and sometimes we are scared to go over, the, over, the, over our shoulders for monitoring. We monitor the hemodynamics, we monitor the respiratory mechanics, we monitor urine output, we monitor everything, but we too often forget to monitor the brain in these patients. 
Thank you, Chiara. Chiara. Uh, was very, a very clear explanation and uh, interesting insights for clinicians and uh, hopefully uh, a new started point for new investigation maybe. So uh, the next uh, question is uh, what type of uh, neuromonitoring uh, um, would you prefer in each of these patients' cohort? So um... Well, uh, the type of neuromonitor depends in general uh, from the question that you are asking to yourself. Of course, as mentioned, these are not brain, primarily brain-injured patients, so invasive uh, neuromonitoring uh, are not indicated in, this, uh, in these patients. So I will certainly go for non-invasive methods, also because uh, in, very often these are patients uh, who may have uh, coagulopathies, etc. An example is uh, those with uh, liver failure. Um, so non-invasive uh, uh, neuromonitoring is uh, definitely my first question and my first answer. Regarding which type of non-invasive neuromonitoring, uh, it depends on the questions that uh, I, I will, I'm asking to my neuromonitoring. Uh, in general, Multimodal neuromonitoring is uh, the best approach if, uh, if you have different um, tools available because you can have a more complete evaluation and definition of the cerebral vascular dynamics. For example, the use of transcranial Doppler could be uh, very useful because transcranial Doppler can provide important bedside information, but it provides information regarding the flow, regarding the intracranial pressure. ONSD, optic nerve sheet diameter, ultrasound sonography is very useful, but it can all only provide information regarding the pressure in the CSF. Uh, Non-invasive oxygen evaluation can provide information regarding the um, oxygen, um, the, the intravascular oxygen. So each of, the, of these tools have uh, different uh, capacities, have uh, different um, abilities and answers to different questions. Okay, thank you very much, Chiara. Uh, and now we'll, let's move to another patient population in neurocritical care. Uh, so in cardiac arrest, what do you think is the best method for neuroprognostication? So um, if uh, you are talking mainly about uh, neuroprognostication, I think that uh, uh, the point uh, is, uh, is quite complex, but just because uh, neuroprognostication is, uh, is a complex issue and uh, it's, uh, uh, it's based on uh, different variables. Uh, there are important algorithms and uh, guidelines which suggest different types of not just neuromonitoring tools, but it's a combination of uh, neuromonitoring tools, neuroimaging, uh, um, biomarkers, uh, uh, etc. Um, so here in this case, uh, I wouldn't say that for prognostication there is uh, one only uh, method which is, uh, uh, which is uh, the gold standard. There are different methods that have to be uh, connected one to each other, the MRI, for example, the EEG, um, the pupillometer, uh, the NSE uh, dosage, uh, etc. And uh, um, in the last, uh, what I can tell you is that um, in the, in the last uh, months, 
research has been focused a lot in, in this field regarding the use of pupillometer. Uh, there was a very nice, important uh, uh, multicenter study regarding the ability of pupillometer uh, in the early phases to assess uh, outcome in, uh, in this patient. And uh, uh, pupillometer is a non-invasive tool and uh, it's, a, it's a very useful tool because uh, basically it's able to provide uh, uh, an objective uh, uh, description of the pupillary function. So it can definitely be used, but also EEG is of extreme importance in, 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 in this context. Okay, thank you. Perfect. Uh, I, I think uh, you, you answered uh, um, very, very well to, to everything. Uh, then uh, we would uh, move to another uh, against population of patient, and we would uh, like to move in the perioperative period um, after neurosurgery, but also vascular and cardiac surgery. So in, in the perioperative period, uh, after this kind of, uh, of surgeries, which kind of neuromonitoring tool and why would you use it? Um, thank you. This is a, a very interesting question. And uh, I think that another important application of uh, neuromonitoring is uh, in the perioperative period. Uh, I would say that in the postoperative phase, the best neuromonitoring tool is the clinical assessment. So uh, the first message is that patients uh, uh, should be woken up. Uh, if, of course, if, if it is possible, because the best neuromonitoring tool that we have is the clinical assessment. This is a, a general rule for, uh, for everything. Um, intraoperative, especially intraoperative neuromonitoring when the patient is sedated, I think can be really useful because it can predict the risk of developing uh, uh, neurological complications in the perioperative and postoperative phase. We have done some research even in uh, in different types of uh, neuro surgeries. Cardiovascular uh, surgery, as you mentioned, is one of uh, these type of surgery which have uh, the majorities of uh, neurological complications. Stroke, uh, intraoperative stroke is, is, very, is very common in these patients. Uh, there are papers and research uh, which applied uh, a wide variety of uh, neuromonitoring tools. For example, uh, the NIRS, which demonstrated that uh, a reduction from the baseline or a chronic reduction, reduction uh, or an acute reduction in the intraoperative phase of cerebral oxygenation is associated with neurological uh, complications in the post-op. Uh, there are papers which uh, describe uh, the use of uh, EEG in the intraoperative phase, uh, again, to detect uh, um, neurological complications like stroke, emboli, etc. Transcranial Doppler, again, to detect emboli or to detect alteration in, in the cerebral blood flow. There are plenty of these uh, um, of the of this paper regarding the neurosurgical one uh, even in this case, there are uh, uh, basically um, the same amount of, of papers. Sometimes it's more difficult to, uh, to apply the neuromonitoring tools uh, during uh, uh, neurosurgery because the, the surgeons are, is, uh, are actually working uh, on the brain. Mm, but uh, uh, intraoperative monitoring of the cerebral blood flow of cerebral oxygenation have, have shown to, uh, to be able to detect uh, intracerebral complications with uh, quite good accuracies. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, 
finally, Chiara, I would like you to give a message for the audience about the use of neuromonitorings, both in neuro and non-neuro critical care patients, just to, to leave a message, a final message. The final message from my point of view is that we have to learn that uh, neuromonitoring is not just for neurointensivists. Uh, it should be a common practice of all uh, general intensivists, because as I was mentioning at the beginning, we are so used to monitor all the organs, but we are not really used to monitor the brain. And this is a mistake because at the end of the story, the target of our treatment should be also the brain because uh, we have to avoid the short and long-term uh, neurological complications. So I think we have to put a lot of effort in terms of research and uh, education regarding the implementation of this technique and uh, in teaching uh, even to general ICU practitioner and uh, uh, anesthetist, um, how to use and how to interpret uh, these, uh, these tools. Thank you very much. So um, I think um, that the podcast uh, is now finished and thank you to everybody for, uh, for listening to, to us. Thank you, Chiara, for being here today and share your expertise. I think it has been a very interesting and a fundamental educational initiative from uh, ESAECM. Uh, so goodbye to everyone. Thank you, Chiara. Thank you, Denise. Thank you to SICM. Um, and um, thank you to, to all of you for organizing this uh, postcard and, and for the opportunity to answer these important questions. Ciao. Mm -hmm.